Perfect. First late night. This is fun. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Joey. Hey, Dolly. How you doing? Good. I guess it's good evening. <laughs> <laughs> good evening. Good evening. Congrats on surviving another week once again. <laughs> Everyone, welcome to Plum Radio. We are a weekly Instagram live show that is experimenting with our format. So normally you may find us on Sundays on Instagram Live. We've moved our show to Monday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern time so that we can talk to more of you guys. You know, sometimes we have friends and family and folks who want to watch from all the way across the world. And this is a time in which they can actually catch us here on Instagram Live. We actually decided to switch up our format and get our guests to come on uh, on a pre-recorded episode. I know that 9 p.m. is not that late, but you know. It's late for me because I'm old. Joey needs 12 hours of beauty rest every night to keep his hair that shiny. (laughs) (laughs) At least eight and a half. At least eight and a half. So this allows us to have our friends in Asia be able to be a part of the show. This also allows us to pre-record some of our interviews because some of our guests are not here on Instagram. And also because Sunday nights is not the best night for them. So I'm seeing actually quite a few of our friends from Asia tuning in right now. And that's awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank you for joining Good in. Good morning over there. <laughs> Good morning to Asia. So Joey and I spent a long time thinking about how to move our show forward and what is important to us about Plum Radio. And we wanted to take this back to one of our original concepts of making Plum Radio a show that is race therapy, but make it a podcast (laughs) where you therapize me and I therapize you and we therapize each other so that we can make it through this pandemic wildfire shitstorm that we're in. Two people who are not therapists. Not therapists. Therapizing each other. Therapizing each other to therapize you. Is, is anyone out there actually a therapist? Please tell us how to do therapy below. We're not licensed professionals, but we're, we're going to try. So thank you guys for joining in. Thank you for tuning in on our new Monday night show. We want to give a, a shout out to our Patreon supporters, our Plum Posse on Patreon. We're actually hosting a documentary screening of First Vote. It is a documentary about first-time Asian American voters on both sides of the political spectrum. So if you've ever been interested in getting into the psyche of Asian Trump supporters, this is the documentary that takes you deep inside that world. So this is exclusive oh, yeah. just for our Patreon subscribers. And you know, therapy is expensive, but Patreon, you can support <laughs> Plum Radio for just $5 a month and it's totally worth it. And then we can ju- and then we can just make uh, ASMR sounds at you instead. You love the sound of my voice. Go to patreon.com slash Plum Radio to support our show. We are a listener funded show. We are independent and this helps us keep the show alive. And for our Plum Posse, we have virtual screenings like the one we're about to have this Friday on 925 of First Vote. We will give you ASMR sounds, whatever it is that floats your boat. So make sure you support us over there. And thank you to all of our current Patreon subscribers uh, for supporting the show. Not too late to get that invite for Friday. Patreon.com slash Plum Radio. Go and head on over now. And then uh, you can watch this movie for free. You'd have to pay (laughs) to rent it otherwise. We already paid to rent uh, it. Just for you, just for you, you. we're hooking it up for free.
And this week, we'll be releasing our full episode on Wednesday. You can catch a full episode with our guest this week, who is Annie Tan, New York City public school teacher. Um, we really want to sit down and talk to her to get a sense of what's going on in New York City's public schools. Why is it opening? Is it reopening? They've changed the story up so many times. Is it even safe to reopen? Is it okay for students to have a full full year of remote learning? Annie is also a special education teacher. So there's so many complexities that come with reopening schools. So we're excited to release that episode with Annie this Wednesday. Spoiler alert, things are not going things well. Things are not going well in the New York City public <laughs> school system. Surprise, surprise. Just a secret for you. <laughs> so yes, race therapy, but make it a podcast, Joey. This is where we are now. We had originally talked about this show being a place for us to both figure out like where we were politically, but also try to make sense of the world, right? And I think we're not typically folks who are known for being very like upfront about emotions or, you know, really discussing mental health in a lot of ways, right? And I think we're all we're all struggling mm-hmm. right now. So that's what that's why we wanted to talk about things that have been going on. But but it's just allow, you know, give us space to just let it out. Yes. So and I see a comment here from Joanne. Joanne is actually a friend from Taiwan. So very excited that we can finally have our friends from Taiwan. What's up, Taiwan? Uh, who has been following Annie Tan since our episode uh, three with Annie. So Annie is actually our first recurring guest, and she's a descendant of Vincent Chin. So for people who listen to that episode, yes, that is the same Annie Tan. Um, and she's been out there, you know, taking to the streets, raising awareness. We're really excited for you guys to hear that episode with her. But, you know, let's let's catch up on this week. Yeah, so uh, so Dolly, welcome to therapy. Uh, here I am, uh, a therapist. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I don't know what, what's what's on your mind this week. Like, what are you what are you in for? You know, I was thinking a lot about what is ailing me this week, and you know, we've talked about this on our show. We've posted about this before, but something that is upsetting to me right now is the WeChat block. So Donald Trump had issued multiple bans on WeChat already. Most recently, he said he'd ban it again by Sunday. Right now, that's still up in the air. Um, There was an injunction that temporarily stopped the WeChat ban. I think what's so upsetting about this WeChat ban is hearing the Asian American people, especially, you know, other Chinese Americans who are very blindly just saying, oh, yes, Sure, just ban it. It's irrelevant to me anyway, and it's a representation of authoritarianism. That type of thinking is as black and white as people who think that racism towards Asian Americans is not relevant, right? That is the same level of dismissiveness that we see when people talk about, you know, like, oh, well, racism towards Asians doesn't affect me, right? If it doesn't affect me, and if I don't understand the language and I don't understand this sphere like WeChat, then it has nothing to do with me, therefore you can ban it. But the reality is WeChat is a space in which so many people talk and have conversations. My family group chat is on WeChat. My family group chat that not just connects me to my immediate family, but to all of my cousins abroad, right? From Hong Kong to Taiwan to mainland China. It is a space in in which Chinese language speakers can talk to one another, stay in touch, And I think that for people on the outside who have never used WeChat or think that it's like it's just some government ploy, I think I can't even theorize about what they might think WeChat is. But just like any other social media platform that we're on, people are sending dogs, cats and dicks. That's what's on WeChat. (laughs) Dogs, cats and dicks. (laughs) 
for something like WeChat, it's like, this is how people keep in touch with their family. Like this is your way of, you know, staying in touch with the people that you love. Right. And when you're saying like, oh, let's cancel this because like, uh, you know, authoritarianism or whatever, like, what do we even mean by that? Like, what do we even mean by like, oh, authoritarianism? Like, is it like, oh, Chinese companies are like going to take our data now because like U.S. companies are taking our data. They're they're finding the data on this right now. Like we're we're beaming this data out to the you know to NSA's prison program right now. <laughs> but this is people talking to their families. This is you know like just basic hum- human communication. And and you know just to say like, oh, we're going to ban this and and get rid of this. It's like just meant to antagonize Chinese people, right? And it, you know within the U.S. itself, you have about three million people who use WeChat. Globally, it's over a billion people who use WeChat. For example, in Australia, there was a limitation on WeChat where they prevented people from having WeChat if they worked for the government, right? That could potentially make sense. But talking about like sharing data and surveillance and things like that, during the protests that started over the summer around George Floyd, um, around after Akmal Arbery's killing, there were people who started jumping onto Signal and Telegram and all of these encrypted messaging apps. But I was like... If you guys really want to organize and not let the U.S. government know, actually, everyone should just get on WeChat because <laughs> the Chinese government will probably never, ever release that transcript to the U.S. government. So if you really want to stage a coup in the U.S., you should stage it on WeChat. <laughs> Take that for some reason. Uh, big, big NSA. Big NSA. Don't, don't, don't say that too loud. <laughs> And then if people in China can stage their revolution on Instagram, that would be. (laughs) (laughs) When Telegram showed up, China went and DDoS Telegram. Like they went and like, you know, hammered the Telegram servers with (laughs) all sorts of garbage traffic until Telegram stopped working. But right. uh, Yeah. You know what's. I promise no one's really doing that to WeChat, though. (laughs) But think about the impact it has on people, right? Like WeChat is not just for sharing information. It's where like my mom has her cooking group there. That's where she talks to her family. That's where she keeps up with her siblings. Hi, Mama Lee. Hi, Mama Lee. I know she's watching. We had Ashley on a previous episode from the Ning Box. That's where people share information about events, um, about organizing. You know, I have journalist groups, journalist networks that are only on WeChat, where it's like, you know, female journalists who are covering Asia and China. It's where we're able to find sources. So many people ask me, where do you find your stories, right? How did you meet these people? I met them because of WeChat. You know, there's another internet out there, and it's not just here in the American Google internet, right? There's a whole other world on WeChat, and some people only exist over there. And that's how I'm reaching out to some of the people I've been interviewing. So, you know, it's just feeling very torn about the way some other Asian Americans have reacted to this WeChat ban, celebrating it as if it's some triumph for our country or for democracy, but really it's just another backhanded racist way of telling Chinese people that they're unwanted and that they should be silenced and that they don't deserve a space in which they can communicate in a language that they speak. Yeah. And it's it's frustrating to see, you know, folks reacting to this WeChat ban as if like, there's, there's really something that is one here, like as if like something good has happened. Mm -hmm. Right. Especially when you consider all these other, you know, Chinese people in America who are getting 
beaten up or having their student visas revoked, being accused of being spies or whatever new Cold War um, behavior you're seeing happening, targeting Asian people, targeting Chinese people just for being here Mm -hmm. in the country. What makes us any better? Just because like, you know, because I was born here, what makes me any better? Like, right. It's it's all about the money. (laughs) Throw your comments in, you know, if you have your own experiences with WeChat, if you're feeling a certain type of way about it being banned, you know, or if you really think that it's going to save our democracy, please feel free to throw that in the comments as well. And here there's a comment from Joanne that says her dad uses line to communicate with her Taiwan side of the family and WeChat to communicate with the Hong Kong side of the family. That's a reality, Mm -hmm. right? Young Joe, what brings you to Plum Radio Race Therapy? Make it a podcast this week. Oh, <laughs> gosh. Uh, Call her I mean, by her full same name. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. The thing that's on my mind this week is uh, fascism, fascism once again. Oh, man. I You know, there's these reports this week about um, ICE performing forced hysterectomies on immigrant women who are in ICE's detention camps, which are really concentration camps, you know, for playing a game of semantic, mm-hmm. you might as well call them concentration camps because that's where all this terrible stuff is happening. It's frustrating and it's it's really sad because when in like, you know, 2016 when Trump was elected and it was all like, you know, oh my gosh, like, you know, fascism is coming to America and like if it were Nazi Germany and we were living there, this is what we were like, you know, I would have, there's no way we'd ever, ever would let this happen, but this is America. Mm-hmm. It's happening like, you know, right now, you know, it's like, first of all, they've been happening in America for, you know, since the early 20th century, like since the early 1900s, America's passed these like, you know, sterilization and eugenics laws. And it's still happening, you know, it's still happening a hundred years later. And it's really really terrible and i feel like no one really can be like bothered to care or like to well to take action. you know as as an asian american but also as as a man like why why is this something that pains you so much because it's you know it is true like these forced hysterectomies like hysterectomies is the removal of a uterus the whistleblower don wooten said that you know there are people who are getting ovaries removed you know for nothing right and you have people who are, who are in prisons right so first of all they're in these ice prisons, detention camps, concentration camps, right? And you're, you're packed in there because prisons, you know, you, you pack people in, right? So it's like prisons are a place where people are going to get sick when you don't have mm-hmm. basic hygiene, when you don't have basic health care, when you don't have basic nutrition, right? Bad things are going to happen. And so you, you can see, obviously, like you, you get put in prison and then your health starts to decline and then the, the reaction to it is like, oh, it's just like, you know, let's scoop out your uterus and take out your ovaries. Like it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's literally genocide, yeah. right? And like, as a man, like, why am I upset? Like, I don't know. I I remember learning about the Holocaust in school, like, and there's all this moralizing around it, right? Like, this is so terrible, mm-hmm. and like, you know, the Nazis were so terrible, and like, and we 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 were totally unafraid to call it what it was: genocide, mm-hmm. fascism, you know, and all these things, right? Um, but because it happens in America, and because it happens to black and brown and immigrant women, right? It seems to be right. fine, right? right? Like. I was so heated. I was, you know, hearing this news and I went and I don't know if I go into a, my favorite search engine and I type in definition of genocide and I get to the, the UN's webpage definition of genocide. And, and I'm, re- I'm reading it and it says, genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or part a national, ethnical, or racial, or religious group, including imposing measures in, intended to prevent births within the group. Like it's right there in the UN definition of genocide. The US that created the UN that wrote the definition of genocide 
says that this is genocide. And so it's genocide and it's happening in our mm-hmm. country and and people are just like, it's just, it's just like another news item. Right. It just doesn't even register anymore. You know? I mean, I think what it ends up showing is like this one, our US government's failing healthcare system, right? Like part of the reason why these hysterectomies are happening is because they don't want to provide healthcare to these people who are essentially in prison, right? They're escaping whatever trauma they have in their home countries. They show up to the United States. Of course, their bodies and their cycles are fucked up. They haven't seen daylight. What's so crazy is like, you know, thinking about the way in which a state's burdens, right? A nation's burdens always fall on the bodies of women. If you think about like China's one child policy, for example, from one side, yes, overpopulation is a problem, right? When your nation is overpopulated and you're poor, you cannot feed people. That's how famines happen. And that's how wars start. But then to help with population control, that onus, that onus fell on women. That onus fell on women's bodies. They didn't go and tie up the tubes of men. That fell on women. For women who had more than one child, if the government found out, what would happen is there were these like Chinese IUD squads, right? They would show up to women's homes, essentially snatch them, arrest them, take them to a clinic and insert. And back then, these are really painful IUDs. The copper IUDs are like five inches. They're like this big. Okay. And whenever they put them into your body, it not only hurts, it also makes your period worse, Right. And what would be easy is if you just tied the tubes of men, but the state prioritizes male genetics and the male body so much more over women that when a nation crumbles, women continue to shoulder the pain of a nation. Right. Like, and the great irony of it is that during this time period of China's one child policy, the U.S. took in these refugees, took in women from China who were who were experiencing this imposed IUD, who were in, experiencing, you know, imposed birth control, imposed sterilization. Right. And here we are literally doing it to people who are desperately leaving their homes, entering through the Texas-Mexico border. And we're doing the same exact thing that we say, oh, well, if politically we can call you a refugee, if then we will see what's happening towards you, which is forced sterilization, as some inhumane act. But when it's against our nation's interests, aka we don't want to front the health care of undocumented mm-hmm. immigrants, then we turn it around and we let forced sterilizations just become another thing that the state needs to take care of. What are people running from, by the way? Other people are running from like U.S. intervention in Central American politics and overthrowing governments and causing chaos. And, and then what, what makes me so upset is that like one in seven Asian immigrants to America are undocumented, right? There's the folks who work in the Chinese restaurants that we love to go to, that we eat at and that feed our families, right? Like a lot of All folks undocumented. in Chinese restaurants are undocumented, mm-hmm. right? We can't be bothered to care to to raise our voices on behalf of folks, right? Like I feel like there's the, that hypocrisy within our own community as well. Like we, our generation, or our parents, like came here like through whatever means they came here, escaping whatever they were escaping. Who are we to turn our backs on on folks who are arriving now? Right. And here, Joanne asks, you know, where can I learn more about this topic that we're talking about? The whistleblower who brought up, you know, what was happening in the ICE detention centers. Their name is, let me see. Don Wooten. Mm-hmm. 
Will you spell that for everyone? Yes, Dawn as in D-A-W-N and then Wooten, W-O-O-T-E-N. She's a hero. She is a she was a nurse in the facility. Uh, she's a black woman. She is raising her voice. She is being courageous. She's putting herself at great personal risk to expose what's happening in these prisons, right? ACLU put out an infographic earlier uh, this week about America's long history of forced sterilizations, right? So there's a lot of folks who are connecting what's happening in ICE concentration camps now to America's dirty past. So if, if you if you if you punch it in search engines wherever you can find these articles, a lot of articles will have made this connection between what's happening now and these forced sterilizations. I mean, it's not just happening in ICE facilities, right? Like California had these laws, their eugenics laws in the early 1900s said that uh, Latinas were quote unquote sex delinquents. And they said that sterilizations were necessary to protect the state from increased crime, poverty, and racial degeneracy. Oh but then even <laughs> oh God, but then oh even God, then oh but even then between 2006 and 2010, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation also sterilized another 150 female inmates without the required state approvals, like which I find like so hilarious is like you'd have to like get approval from the state of California to like sterilize an inmate. But then they're just like, no, we don't even want to bother with getting the approval mm-hmm. to sterilize this person. I'm going to just, that was, that was last decade. It wasn't, that's not like mm-hmm. that far in the rearview mirror. Right. But because it happens to prisoners, because it happens to the most marginalized people in our society, it's just like, we can't be bothered. To right. Care. And you know, I, we have a comment here that says the forced sterilizations in ICE detention centers has not yet been proven to be like a systemic issue. Um, whether or not it was like a few incidences or, you know, if whether or not it's systemic, I think there's not enough information, um, which is valid. But, you know, what the bigger the bigger issue with the way the U.S. treats undocumented black and brown women, I mean, we may not call it forced sterilization now. We like celebrate the IUD as this thing of liberation. But IUDs are often just given to black and brown teenage girls here in the U.S. right now, and we're not calling it forced sterilization, right? They go into to see a gynecologist or whatever, and they're just offered this thing. They don't really have enough information to understand what it is that they're putting into their bodies, and we see it as a celebration of, you know, like, oh, teen pregnancies went down, right? But it's so specifically common just for people in the black and brown community, right? So... Yes, it may not just be, uh, you know, uh, it may not be a systemic issue in ICE, but it's definitely, you know, the controlling the body of women, especially, you know, black and brown women and young women is something that the U.S. is definitely guilty of. We don't get to have a whistleblower in every clinic, every space that we go into, Um, but the U.S. has a history of this and it's still happening right beneath our noses. And there are other reports of these things happening in other ICE facilities, right? And it's not just the sterilizations. What about the kids in the cages? Mm-hmm. What about the border patrol officers who are just at the border just, just shooting assault rifles at, at crossing migrants, right? It's just, how much do we have to see for us to believe that this is what's happening, for us to come to terms that this is what's happening, mm-hmm. right? Like, how much evidence do we need, right? It's been reported. All this stuff has been making it into the media, right? How much more do we have to see? How many more people have to die for us to take it seriously? Yeah. Join us for more race therapy on Plum Radio. You know, if there are other topics that you guys want us to talk about, questions or comments, we want to open the floor up to y'all. 
And so to close off our new Monday late night, let's do our weekly segment, our whole and blessing to condemn all the negative energy and bless this show. Yeah, so if you if you got a if you got a blessing, go ahead and go ahead and light a yes, blessing. Yes, light but, a so, blessing. You know, we're not gonna <laughs> we're not gonna stop you from lighting a blessing. Wait, I think I have a blessing here. Uh, oh, please, night, please light a blessing for us, Dolly. But before the blessing, how about a hole, Dolly? Can you give us a hole for the week? A hole. You know, I think we've all been mourning a similar hole: um, the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, may she rest in power. You know, she was what, 87 when she died? Mm-hmm. Very. I know mm-hmm. she's a very important Supreme Court justice and has done a lot of work for women's rights and is such... And, you know, we're all mourning RBG. Yes, she has left a hole in the Supreme Court, but why is our entire nation trying to preserve this really old woman to preserve democracy? Like, Ruth... Bader Ginsburg wasn't going to be the solution to our country's ailments. I I find this discourse around like she picked the wrong time to die as like (laughs) a like a like a a failing of hers. Like as if our democracy and our civil rights truly hinge on the lifespan of an 87 year old. What What? kind of democracy do we live in? Like Like, that is a whole too. Why is our why is this how we're, we're like, why could she not? live until past November, the the November election, right? It's like one that's contingent on you think that there's going to be a Biden presidency, which and somehow she'll just wait for him to die. And then what? And are are they going to choose someone that's an extremely radical? No, they're probably going to put some moderate into the, the hole that she's left on the Supreme Court. I mean, like, seriously, bless RBG. We celebrate a, a life of a, a woman who's done a lot for the country, but come on. And this this comment from Austin, and he's been listening to a podcast called Five to Four, which is a really great podcast about Supreme Court cases, uh, where their argument was that she failed to retire from office when Obama's already in office, even though she was clearly really, really old and maybe should have retired because... Perhaps it's arrogance, thinking that she needed to be there to rescue our decrepit nation. But once again, how is an 85-year-old woman, how is she going to rescue our ailing nation? If... If that if those were like truly the stakes, then like if really our civil rights and our democracy depended on just this one person, I don't I don't think that then that's a, an issue with the person, right? Then we're then we're living in the kind of dictatorship that we claim to hate, yeah. right? Like, yeah. If if that's if that's truly the kind of power that one person has, then yeah. And and that was like a failure of their to remain in an office that was given to them for the duration of their lifetime. I, like. <laughs> What are you supposed to do? I mean, like, I, I, so in the uh, whole, I mean, our whole nation, depending on RBG to, you know, be oh put gosh. on like life support or whatever to save our country. And, and, <laughs> and it's not as much a criticism of RBG's decision as it is a criticism of the the institution and the functioning of the Supreme Court. Like, Bath. if you were to describe this to like an outsider <laughs> just be like, or like to aliens who had come to earth they would just be like what what, what? <laughs> like, you know what i've tried you? i've like, really tried i've tried to explain the electoral college system to people in china because they <laughs> <laughs> they're like so isn't it true that 
your country voted for this other person and that more people wanted this other person, yet Donald Trump is present there. Can you please explain that? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a theory like, called well. checks and balances. I was like, uh, there's this thing called the Electoral <laughs> College. And they're like, wait, so you guys don't actually get to choose? And I was like, no, but we do, but we don't. And then there's these really powerful people who have more power than me. And they're like, sounds like us. <laughs> Just like, oh yeah, so all your So all your votes get consolidated into 538 like sub people so it's like you have all these people and then they become some smaller set of people and then they go and, and sit in a room and and, and, decide, and decide your fate for you is. i mean american individualism yeah. democracy. Right? Democracy. It's democracy it's great it works hey. so well <laughs> okay we need a blessing we need a blessing let's bless the show <laughs> Well, Dolly, what's what's a what's a blessing for this week? Let's see. We okay. Last night was the primetime Emmys. Most unusual. Everyone was all over the place. <laughs> take it, take it from Emmy Award winner Dolly Lee uh, to to tell nah. you about the to tell you about the Emmys from last night. <laughs> I only have a regional Emmy. I don't have a primetime Emmy. <laughs> hey, it says it says Emmy on it. Okay, it says Emmy. <laughs> Okay. Well then, Emmy Award. <laughs> so, so let me ask our, our resident <laughs> Emmy Emmy winner, Dolly Lee. Tell us about the, your your new <laughs> Emmy comrades these days. Our blessing goes to Zendaya, who won, who one looked amazing at the Emmy at the Emmys last night, and she won lead actress for in a drama for her role in Euphoria, and is the youngest person to win this award she's 25 uh, 24 years old she even beat out some of my favorite people like sandra oh on killing eve but you know what she deserves it some people are talking smack about how it's an upset win but what's so upsetting about a 24 year old woman killing it bless zendaya sandra oh got her emmys right or her she's gotten so. her awards right someone fact check yeah. us did sandra oh get it's spread it around yeah, <laughs> Sandra, oh, forgive us. Please come on to the show. <laughs> uh, I, f- I find it hilarious that a show named Shit's Creek uh, won seven <laughs> Emmys last night. Yes, uh, a show. <laughs> is it a show about 2020 called Shit's Creek? Is that is that is that what the show so about? Good. Is it about 2020? Shit's Creek is so good. I've I've heard this other podcast where the Shit's Creek uh, cast was on, and apparently their show on TV was like not super well received then it got on netflix and everyone just blew it up oh Mm -hmm. man fact check here from roger she has a golden globe and no emmy oh you know what that really breaks my heart too i also want sandra oh to get an emmy okay well i'm gonna pull up in the hazmat suit outside of sandra o's house and and deliver (laughs) her the emmy i don't know if you saw the picture (laughs) we will hand deliver sandra o an emmy from plum radio (laughs) as part of our race therapy (laughs) I don't know if you, I don't know if, do you see the picture of uh, Rummy from the show Rummy? Uh, like Rummy on Hulu, which by the way is an excellent show if y'all haven't seen it, um, posted a picture of like, they apparently like the Emmys had sent someone like in, in like a hazard suit, like to hold the Emmy to like give it to them in case they won. And if not, they like, like the picture of this guy holding a hat, like in a hazmat suit, holding a Emmy, like waving and like walking away <laughs> yeah, because he didn't win that. the Emmy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I see so many, so many Shits Creeks fans, <laughs> Shits Creek fans in here. Alana, Alana actually turned me on to Shits Creek, and it's so so good. Eugene Levy and his son, oh my god, they shine, they shine, comedic hilarity. 
And (laughs) one more blessing. If you guys are looking for something to watch, uh, if you're, you know, other than joining us to watch First Vote this Friday on Plum... uh, Patreon.com slash Plum Radio. Patreon.com slash Plum Radio. I'm going to type it in right here. But if you're looking for something to watch, the new Paris Hilton documentary, which is actually free on YouTube, is really, really good. I know it's Paris Hilton, but you get to hear her real voice in it. And she's got she's got a dark secret that she's going to share in the documentary. Um, my friend Melissa, Mel Jang, if you're listening, she told us, a group of our girlfriends, to watch this documentary. It is so fascinating because before Paris Hilton, there was no such thing as social media influencers and reality TV. And you, I totally forgot this, but Paris Hilton introduced Kim Kardashian to the world. Kim Kardashian makes a short appearance in the documentary as one of the interviewees. And she's listed as former assistant and friend. <laughs> so let's not forget Paris Hilton introduced Kim Kardashian to the world because Kim was her assistant. Are we saying Paris Hilton needs to get her flowers while she's still here? <laughs> Are we saying we need to pay respect to Paris Hilton? Because I think I can get down with that. So yes, Def Watch a Paris Hilton documentary. It is a blessing. It covers the history of influencers and internet fame. It's also free on YouTube and it covers mental health. It's a great story to just watch. I watched it while I was uh, just making dinner, just doing random things. So leave it on. Totally worthwhile. And thanks for everyone who's uh, peer pressuring me to watch this freaking <laughs> here because uh, I was I was telling Christine the other night, it's like, you know, one of my favorite shows is Arrested Development, oh. which is fundamentally a show about how terrible these rich white people are. And Schitt's Creek uh, is apparently Shit's Creek is the exact yes, same yes, show. Yes, so, yes. you know, maybe it is right up my alley. Right I'll, up I'll get on that right after this. You guys, <laughs> what's going on? Should we reopen? Should we not reopen? And if you have. Yeah, huge shout out to Annie. I don't know if you all have been keeping up with her since episode three, but. Uh, they have been, uh, her and the teachers union, or at least like her part of the teachers union have been fighting so hard for safe school reopening or to, to have schools, um, come back remotely, but it is, it sounds pretty rough. Mm -hmm. So, uh. But yeah, so to learn to learn more about that, yeah, a blessing for Annie. Light your blessings, y'all. And if you guys have race therapy to bring to the table, hit us up on hi at plumradio.com and we will see you guys next month. Slide into our DMs. Slide right in. Three, two, one. Oh my God, we all did clap (laughs) on the same time. Close enough. Close enough, good enough. Everyone, this is Annie Tan, our first recurring guest on Plum Radio. Annie was our episode three guest. And Annie also happens to be one of the descendants of Vincent Chin. Um, and today we're here with Annie once again because Annie's also a New York City public school teacher. And we wanted to get the latest from her about what's happening with the reopening of schools. Annie, can you please fill us in? Uh, give us some background. What do you teach? Where do you teach? Uh, so I am a special education teacher in Sunset Park. Uh, I teach fourth and fifth grade. Uh, so today is Saturday, September 19th. And it's very important to say the date these days because I might record something a week ago, which I did actually for another press organization. And then it was completely canceled on Thursday when we found out that schools were delayed 
in reopening yet again. So mm-hmm. we have had a second delayed in-person reopening because Mayor Bill de Blasio can't get it together. We have funding issues, infrastructure issues. We have ventilation issues. We don't have the safety supplies necessary. We just don't have a plan either to get it all together or the staffing. So it's a complete nightmare in New York City. So far, we're scheduled to push things back to September 29th. But who knows if that's going to happen. And that's really been a nightmare. I literally took a mental health sick day from work yesterday because it has been so exhausting. Yeah. And Annie, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us too, because I know it must be so frustrating as an educator right now, having no clarity, no real direction. Um, can you share share with us what was the original plan before school got pushed back again? So I'll go back to March 1st, the pandemic starting and my principal's like, hey, Annie, make sure you have your students wash their hands before they go into your class, before lunch, after lunch, all of that. And then I take my students to the bathroom in early March, and then there's no soap. There's broken Hmm. toilets, broken bathrooms. Anyone who's been in a New York City public school or generally an urban public school knows that these are all issues um, that our schools have been- Very typical. Yep. And me and you went to Brooklyn Tech. We saw Mm -hmm. that the windows in the bathrooms didn't open very much. Brooklyn Tech is another New York City public school, just for people to know that Dahlia and I are both alums of New York (laughs) City public schools and our schools have been defunded for decades. So this is kind of the context of this New York City schools reopening where the mayor is like, we want students back in person, but we also as teachers have spent hundreds of dollars on average to fund our classrooms every single year. And we rely on crowdsourcing uh, resources from our students and their families every year. Like on a typical school supply list, you might ask for paper towels and hand sanitizer and wipes because the school doesn't have them. Whereas in any other job, any corporate job, those things are supplied for the workers and you don't have to worry about that stuff. But in March also, The mayor's office said, oh, if there are cases in school buildings, we will close those school buildings. And that didn't happen. So uh, there is one campus, the Grace Dodge campus in March that had cases of coronavirus. But the Department of Education would not close down those schools. They weren't being transparent with the staff there. And uh, they were terrified. You know, it was the beginning of a pandemic. And. Uh, The mayor also refused to close down the school system. Um, It's not really public knowledge because the mayor didn't want to put this knowledge out, but a lot of teachers ended up sticking out. Um, So teachers took it upon themselves to keep us safe. Um, And I think that's just been an overall movement through the George Floyd protests and beyond that the people keeping us safe are our community members. We keep us safe. Um, And it's a really important narrative right now to understand that We don't trust the Department of Education to do everything needed to keep us safe. Everything that I just said in March is now playing out today, September 19th. Contact tracers aren't being sent off uh, to people. Schools are seeing cases of coronavirus. I believe now there's over 60 cases where staff members have contracted COVID-19 wherever they were and come into possibly school buildings and possibly expose other staff members to coronavirus. And they're waiting like four or five days to do contact tracing. And that's not keeping us safe. And this is even before students are coming into the school building. 
Annie, what was the original plan? Was the original plan to have the students come in at the same time as the teachers? Was it going to be like, you know, 30% of students or, you know, just certain ages? What was initially proposed? So in July, the mayor and the Department of Education proposed this hybrid blended and remote plan. So schools could pick between a two cohort model and a three cohort model, meaning that you split your school up into two groups or three groups. And then there would always be another group for all remote learners because uh, the city was giving parents the opportunity to do all remote learning again this fall. As we know in the spring, we were at all remote. So this is the mayor's attempt to start in-person learning. So most schools had to opt for a three cohort model, meaning that your kids would be in school a third of the week. So what that would play out like with some of my students would be that they might come in a Wednesday this week and then a Monday and Wednesday the following week and then the next Wednesday. So on average, a kid might be coming into the school building six days a month. Hmm. So this is the plan. Now as a teacher, if I'm gonna teach cohort A in person, Who's going to teach cohorts B and C while they're remote that day? And that keeps changing. So initially, they were going to hire 10 to 12,000 people to let those remote kids have teachers at home while I'm teaching in person, right? What kind of people would they hire? So this keeps changing, Dolly. Found out uh, this week that they want to hire laid off city university employees. So graduate students and college professors, basically, who were laid off, who don't have certified licenses. And they're also trying to pull uh, central Department of Education staff, anyone who has a license and be like, hey, we need you. You're getting pushed into the school. So that would account for like 2000 people. And then the city university CUNY laid off people would account for like 2500 more people. But again, that doesn't count for everyone. We would need to staff both the in-person models and the blended models. And there are schools like in Florida and where they're being made to teach both in-person and remote. And it's easily a 12 hour day because If you're teaching in person, then you have to go home and grade all the remote work as well. So it's a ton of work on teachers. My union and the Department of Education negotiated this plan that would need 10,000 more workers, which is logistically impossible. On top of not having the PPE and the supplies, I've been back in my school building now for nine days, haven't been offered a mask once. Wow. Because we don't have the mask. You know, the DOE says... We'll have a 30-day supply, but what I've been given is a gallon of hand sanitizer, one of those pump ones, Mm. a box of gloves, and a cheap thing of alcohol wipes. That's That's all I've been given. That's infuriating to hear. You know, like I I still remember teachers even struggling to do things like find chalk for their classrooms. And, you know, that's not even like a health and safety concern. And to to have the audacity to ask teachers who were defining as essential workers to go back into classes without even the supplies to protect both themselves and the, the students who are coming in. That that sounds like grounds for a civil rights case, to be honest. Correct. <laughs> what do the teachers want? What is because I imagine, you know, like you as a teacher, 
you probably didn't sign up for this either. You know, the kids don't want to be learning remotely. You don't want to be teaching remotely. Parents, of course, don't want to have to, you know, sit down with their kids and teach them how to use the computer to do homework and things like that. This is nobody's ideal situation, right? What do the teachers propose doing? So I think at this point, given that we've delayed twice, parents and educators across the city are just completely losing faith in the city's ability to reopen schools. So my thought is we have to go fully remote until we have all these things in place. We need the staffing because I think all of us know that in a school where there's not enough staffing, then you're going to have unsafe conditions regardless. If you don't have enough people staffing an isolation room where kids who have COVID-19 symptoms are going to sit, right? If you don't have a safety plan in place and the staff to make it happen, it's not safe. I don't have a full-time nurse in my school. Mary de Blasio Mm. promised a full-time nurse. How can we not have a full-time nurse in our school buildings? By the way, we've been asking for full-time nurses for decades in these school buildings. But, you know, hundreds of nurses were being hired in the past few weeks, and they need training in order to work with kids. All of these logistics can be completely fixed immediately if we went fully remote. It doesn't Mm -hmm. fix the issues of childcare, but the mayor said early July that he would have 100,000 seats for childcare. And right now we have about 30,000 seats for childcare. Mm-hmm. This doesn't provide for teachers who have kids at home who need childcare. So where are those kids gonna go? I've heard from colleagues who said they might have to resign because they don't have childcare for their own kids. Mm-hmm. So like wow. that is that is the level of incompetence that is happening on the city level. We need staffing, we need funding, we need the supplies, we need to know that ventilation is actually a thing. And all the ventilation reports say is whether we have exhaust or supply fans or a window. And the guidance from the DOE was that if you have an open window, that's enough. Is that going to be enough (laughs) for when my kids are sitting in a classroom for five hours in the same classroom? They have no recess. They're going to eat lunch in the classroom unmasked. And I'm going to have to sit in the back as they all face forward and they have an instructional lunch. So it's going to be a quiet lunch and they're not going to even get to talk to each other. Is that even development? No. Is that developmentally appropriate? It's an instructional lunch. Yes. Why? Why can't the students at least have lunch where they get to, I don't know, socialize in somewhere, at least be outside of the classroom? So the instructional lunch thing was created so that uh, we could have uh, more instructional time. So the kids are going to be in school only five hours. Usually they're in school like a little under six hours. So it was a way to say, oh, the kids are going to get the maximum amount of instructional time, which is BS, total BS. You know, I'm going to be with my kids and I'm going to let them talk. That's going to happen because developmentally they need to be together. But that's the guidance we're being given right now. And it's it's not okay, especially in a classroom that's not ventilated. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine a group of students, especially students with special needs, especially young kids who are just going to sit straight and listen through their sandwiches and not talk to their friends for what? for five <laughs> hours. And they're going to be sitting six feet apart the whole day. 
I mean, New York City public schools basically don't even have enough room for all of the students. How are they going to be six feet apart? I mean, I even remember in Brooklyn Tech, we would have like 45 person classes and the extra five out of that 45 were people who just had to stand in the back. So where in the world are you going to find all that space to seat all these students? Well, that's what they were saying. That's why they split it into three cohort models so that Mm -hmm. there would be capacity. This also implies that all parents want their kids back. As of last week, which was what, September like 15th, 14th, 42% of parents have opted to go remote. So Mm. like in a 45 person class, maybe 20 of those are learning at home now. But that wasn't the case like a few weeks ago. So that's why things keep shifting as well. So um, I was supposed to get a schedule Tuesday, but then Tuesday night guidance came out. And then that schedule changed. And then I finally got a plan on Thursday because more and more kids are going remote because more and more parents don't trust the DOE to make this plan work. And after Thursday's announcement, they're definitely not going to trust the DOE's plan. So it may go as much as half of all New York City public school students uh, going remote at this point. And also just to say on that, that uh, parents have to opt into remote learning. So like if you don't know how to use that website, if you don't, if you can't find the learning preferences survey online, or if you don't know that the deadline hasn't passed and you can go remote anytime, then you're automatically opted into in person. I think a way to really keep us all safe right now is that parents need to opt their kids to fully remote if they can, um, because We just don't think it's safe. That'll push the system toward possibly servicing the kids that are in the most need. Like I have special education students who need occupational therapy, for instance, and need hand to hand work, physical therapy. Right. And also like speech needs, like we need special PPE to articulate like how to say vowels and different words. We don't have that yet. Right. Yeah. Um. So I feel like a phased in plan makes sense, but nothing about what the city is doing is actually phased in, even though they're calling a phased in responsible plan. Even my union is saying that, which is crazy because my union hasn't really protected us. We've been in classrooms for nine days without students doing everything remotely. I'm I'm sitting in classrooms like on Zoom meetings where the principal has to tell me and the whole staff to turn off our cameras because our Wi-Fi, school Wi-Fi doesn't support the bandwidth. Just is yeah. covering my face in agony for you. Wow. I mean, even if everything went completely remote, there are so many parents who I know are frustrated with, you know, having their kids at home constantly, right? Like full-time yeah. working parents, right? What can the system do for parents like that who are like, I need my kids to go back to school. You know, I'm not able to have like two or three kids at home and do my job and teach them how to like log into the network that they need to do and submit homework assignments online and also just, you know, discipline them at home to tell them like, sit here, pay attention, do your assignment. I'm sure many frustrated parents have reached out to you too. Um, from your just individual interaction with parents and families, what do you feel is their response? They want simple answers like, do you have a device? We don't even know that there will be devices for students right now. You know, in what do you mean device? Like a computer, like mm-hmm. something for them to do mm-hmm. remote learning on. So like I had students sharing one device with their three siblings 
you know, the oh, oldest, yeah. yeah, the oldest kid, the fifth grader, who was my student, would be taking care of their other two sibling stuff while also having a newborn in the house. I know that a lot of parents have been relying on their oldest children to be like that person, unfortunately, because at least in immigrant communities, the parents don't know English. So unfortunately, it's fallen on the kids who have had to create that. And a lot of students have fallen behind and remote learning was very hard. None of us want to do it. Right. I also like in my classroom, like last year, we had 12 students and three paraprofessional assistants and me. And among that, just that group, we had 14 family and friend deaths from COVID-19. Oh my God. So we haven't even stopped to think about, we lost more than one in 400 New Yorkers to this. We haven't stopped and mourned. We just haven't because we just keep going. And then when we talk of parents, you know, they're scared. They're very scared. They want, they need to work. You know, I I also read like earlier this summer that one in four New Yorkers hasn't been able to pay rent Mm -hmm. um, and are scared of getting evicted. And it just shows like so many holes in our social safety net that schools have been places for our homeless students, for food, for shelter. Right. And that was the mayor's reasoning for wanting to keep schools open. But we also know from the researchers at Columbia and from Dr. Tom Frieden that had we closed schools and everything else maybe a week earlier, we would have saved 50 to 80 percent of lives, which would be almost 20,000 New Yorkers saved from COVID-19 had we done that. So I just want to ground in that first. Mm-hmm. Parents don't want to see their children get sick or have their children think they got someone else sick. That's that's right. really the first question that my students asked me in March about this. They're like, can I get my grandma sick? Like, And people right. living in multi-generational households, especially my immigrant students in Sunset Park, So it's not like parents are only thinking about whether they can work and rent. They're also scared as all of us are during this pandemic. It's no good choice. There are no Mm -hmm. good choices right now because of our lack of social safety net. And for me, I've made a schedule like in my 930 in the morning block, like we're going to do an optional morning news portion Mm -hmm. of the schedule where the kids can like share any news they have of like maybe a game they're playing or something that's happening in their life. And then if they have nothing to say to actually share the morning news Um, and actually starting (laughs) in January to actually start talking about the coronavirus. So this was before I knew this would hit New York, but because I'm Chinese American, I was like, this is crazy what's happening in China. Like let's talk about it with the kids. And they just kept asking about it. So for like, two months it was almost daily morning news about coronavirus so like we would see like the quarantine in wuhan um how their social safety net in china consisted of the government bringing them food and helping them buy groceries so like they would you know they had like an app or a list of like what groceries do you want and then people could check off what groceries they wanted and then people would bring it to their door you know and Mm -hmm. i i like that's what we've been doing mutual aid um Mutual aid has unfortunately covered all of the holes of the social safety net, including creating pods where like families like come together and they're like, let's uh, have X, Y, and Z amounts 
kids in the same place. And that's not just for high income families, by the way. That's like lots of other families who've had to figure out childcare through all this um, and who still have to now figure out childcare based on the mayor's announcement two days ago um, because they're not going to have school next week. So parents have had the tough choice through the whole pandemic and the mayor is not making it any easier by changing things at the last minute like this constantly. For me as an educator, it already feels like torture. It's like, am I going to have to find a way to go fully remote or take a leave myself because I can't take the agony of constant changes like this? And by the way, it's City Hall that's driving these decisions. The Department of Education has been completely frustrated with City Hall. If they had just listened to teachers and parents from the start, we would have a much better plan right now. Um, And we may have been able to open. We may have been able to do a fully remote start starting September 10th. But because they don't listen to us, we have lost complete trust in them to make any kind of plan work. So that's where I'm at with it. Like nothing I've said to you is unreasonable. All of this, I think, is really enlightening and also just gives us the perspective of how incredibly difficult this decision is, right? Like there's no clear right answer for children. What they need more than anything, honestly, is stability, right? Like for the kids, it's also torture to just, you know, be told this week you're going to school, this week you're not going to school. And I saw that the last few weeks you were also at protests and rallies. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the organizing that the teachers have been doing? What are the demands? And have you guys seen any results coming out of these rallies? Mm -hmm. So... Over the past few months, I've been working with the movement of rank and file educators, the Moore Caucus, and we've been organizing for a health justice agenda. So anti-racism, a health justice, because we know that COVID-19 has hit black and brown communities inequitably. And especially since our public school system is over 70 percent black and Latin. And so we've been on the streets, you know, August 3rd, we had our National Day of Resistance against school reopening. One parent made this guillotine saying like the blade saying DOE and the hole where the head would go saying us, which is great. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> um, I know. And then people had coffins that they were carrying in the streets. And wow. it's funny because I heard from a reporter who was talking to me yesterday saying, you know, the DOE thinks your coffins at your rallies were extreme and exaggerated. And I'm like, it's not exaggerated because at least six teachers across the nation have died already because of school reopening this fall. So -hmm. that's not an exaggeration that our lives are on the line. You know, and I was like holding up my sign um, and featured on CNN like a few weeks ago saying we won't die for the Department of Education. I am not going to put my body on the line like that, especially with an unsafe plan. Everything I've mm-hmm. outlined to you, it's it's not happening. I'll talk first about what my union has demanded and why those aren't enough. So my union initially demanded only three things. One, supplies, two, ventilation reports, and three, mandatory testing of teachers and students and any staff members coming into the building. And it's a good idea, but what really needs to happen is continued testing and contact tracing, right? Also, like none of those demands talk about the funding for schools that are necessary in order. What if all those safety demands are met and I don't have the funding? 
Like, I don't have supplies mm -hmm. at work. We don't have computers. If we don't have the staffing, how are we going to make this work? So the union actually, because of rank and file educators, were pushed to do a strike threat, which was a very meek strike threat. And before strike authorization vote ever happened, the union negotiated with the mayor and uh, the other principals unions and DC 37 saying that we would have a later opening from September 10th to September 21st, or kids and staff would get mandatory monthly random testing of only 10% of students and staff, which would be only the, like, on. I know. What's the point? What's the point? <laughs> People weren't going to be mandated to get tested before they got into the school building, right? So those uh, 50 to 60 staff members that have gotten uh, positive test cases, those are all voluntary tests that were taken. My union didn't do enough. That's why we've, as a more caucus, we've actually had, we actually had to track the cases for a whole week. We were getting nonstop tips from members saying that the air ducts weren't working. I just swept up rats and cockroaches because they didn't clean this summer. Um, that my school had a positive case and my school's expected to reopen tomorrow. And the DOE is mm -hmm. not telling us anything. Can you help? And we had to track this. It was like a second job at work. I'd be planning my remote lessons. And then after work, I'd be reading these emails and trying to help and trying to get information to people. And then finally, the DOE has been being more transparent about these things and actually released a list of the schools of cases this week. But that was because the Moore Caucus was pushing out that information and being transparent. And I've gotten numerous, numerous people saying we are the only group being really transparent about what is happening. It's not my union, it's not the Department of Education, it's teachers and parents on the ground giving out this information. Um, and over the course of the pandemic, we've tripled in membership. We do paid membership. Um, and we have now 10,000 followers on Facebook and almost 9,000 on Twitter. Um, and I think almost 7,000 on Instagram, which is just bonkers to me because prior to that, you know, we were a much smaller caucus and we've had dozens of protests and rallies all across the city. I think every single day this week, we've had a protest mm -hmm. or rally against the school reopening plan. Um, and every day news has been covering it. And retroactively, the union has been co-opting our work as rank and file members and not just the Moore Caucus, just across the city, teachers doing this work mm -hmm. and saying they are doing this work and they're not doing anything to protect us. In fact, they're protecting the bosses and they're saying you should go back into the school building and not hold this picket right now. And it's been very inconsistent leadership across the UFT. It's been really frustrating to have to fight the Department of Education and also fight against the UFT to actually do the right thing. You know, Annie, for people who are not in the realm of public education, you know, considering that you are making remote lesson plans, in-person lesson plans, talking to parents, you know, trying to get the DOE to hear what the teachers are trying to say, organizing these rallies, how much does a public school teacher even make to be committing this much time and effort to be lobbying all these different departments of New York and, you know, educating the future children of America and managing families' emotions? Right. Right. I mean, it depends on your salaries. We actually have pretty high salaries in New York City uh, compared to the rest of the country. 
as you know, in New York City, we also have a very high standard of living, right? And Mm -hmm. money doesn't really go very far here in New York. But the fact is across the nation, like given the fact that we have both a bachelor's and master's degree, we're making much less money um, than other professions where there are master's degrees. And you know why that is? It's because what 80% of my profession are women. And Mm -hmm. our work is completely degraded. You know, like Mm -hmm. March is like, oh my goodness, thank all your teachers for all the work you do. Because, (laughs) you know, everyone was remote and all the parents are going crazy. And then suddenly it was like May or June has shifted. No, teachers have to do more work. And it's almost a culture of you teachers are only as good as us rearing children. And it goes to this idea and value in America that we don't value child rearing and childbearing. As Ruth Bader Ginsburg said herself, we don't put value in that work. And it just shows, it just completely shows our disregard of children um, during Mm -hmm. this time. What's the hardest thing about trying to teach remotely? Well, the hardest thing about all of this is that every single day, I know my boss doesn't care about me. Not my principal. My principal has been wonderful through all this. That's not been the case for every single teacher, of course. But just the fact that the DOE has not considered our input at all, and it's a march to our deaths. It's frightening. It's terrifying, you know? Mm -hmm. And I know that essential workers have had to figure this out, too. There are no good choices right now. What I'll say is that I don't want to work fully remote. Working remote sucks. (laughs) Like remote learning is terrible, but if it's what it is required to keep us safe, then we have to do it. And I wish we had a society where mutual aid wasn't necessary in order for us to have everything we needed. There are countries that have contained this virus much better than we have. And it's by paying those parents to stay home. And we're the only developed country in the world that doesn't have health care just as a standalone You know, I've talked to doctors and nurses about this and I'm like, am I crazy to want to work from home? And then they're like, doctors and nurses are also working from home. Many doctors and nurses are working virtually because that's the safest thing to do right now. And every job that can work remotely should be working remotely. Why can't we do the same and protect our kids that way and provide childcare as needed and in a way where... We provide childcare for the neediest. Like every single kid in the world is losing out on an education. Every single person in the world is losing out on something right now. We know that. Why are we so rushing toward this education thing? In New York City, it's Asian followed by Black, followed by Latin people who have the highest rates of opting into remote learning right now because we know it's not safe. It's actually white parents who are opting into in-person, which is like just a very interesting t- statistic right now, given that it's white media and white reporters who keep touting the idea that it's low-income, poor kids of color who need the education most right now as an excuse to reopen schools in person. Mm-hmm. And as a teacher of kids of color, of course I want to teach in person. Of course I do. I love my job. But I don't Mm -hmm. want anyone to die. That's just the bottom line or have lifelong symptoms from COVID-19. It's just that simple. 
It's kind of crazy that for things like the NBA and sports, which are restarting now, they're probably testing players every single week, right? But this massive system, this is just one city we're talking about, right? Just New York City, one system, what is it, 1,700 schools in New York, probably hundreds of thousands of students, faculty one, who are involved 1.1, in this 1.1 million students and I believe 150,000 staff members. You would think that for a system like that, there would be weekly testing, you know, just it does not make sense. It really does not make sense to have everyone go into this building. It shows how rotten to the core the New York City Department of Education is, right? Like it started from, as you were saying, not having enough supplies, teachers having to fundraise every single year for their students, right? And this is also on top of an austerity budget. So up till this week, Governor Cuomo, who everyone has touted as the god of the pandemic, He's been withholding education funding. His indecision cost tens of thousands of lives, right? So, like, let's just remember that. It's Governor Cuomo who refuses to tax the rich and actually fund what we need right now. We grew, like, 20 to 30 billionaires in New York State during the pandemic. So, like, people are making money. It's just not the public school systems or the public systems in general that needs to be providing resources and food and rent money and housing and health care uh, to our people on the ground. There are ways to do this and they refuse to be creative and actually move that money to where it's needed most. That's why we focus on equity. I heard you describe like so many like systemic failures, right? Everything from schools already being under-resourced, already not having like, you know, the resources to take care of children during normal times, right? Issues of access, both to Wi-Fi for and like and devices for students who are at home, and also the teachers in schools, um, you know, as well as yeah, uh, the the issues of like childcare and you know parents and, and other families having to do all, all the other things that they're they're having to do to get on with their lives, just you know, sort of regardless of this whole school situation. So I'm I'm curious, sort of like, is there any solution that? allows for, you know, families to be taken care of and also allows for children to receive an education? Yeah, so uh, I've been working with a group called South Brooklyn Mutual Aid. I don't do a ton of work with them, but they've been doing uh, fundraisers for school supplies and backpacks. And uh, just two Sundays ago, they did this big fair where they helped parents and students with iPad device help and other device help. And, you know, they had the census out so like people could fill out the census because everyone, we will lose a lot of money if you don't fill out the census. I was there uh, giving parents information about being fully remote if they wanted the option. And there are groups like Tenants Union, Sunset Park Assembly doing work. South Brooklyn Mutual Aid is also doing this pilot program where teenagers uh, as volunteer hours, because I think a lot of high schools need volunteer hours, are spending time with kids, like tutoring them so that they can get the help they need. So again, a lot of mutual aid efforts have happened on the ground to help alleviate those concerns that we're talking about. And it's been real creative. It's kind of like the idea of freedom dreaming that a lot of people are touting these days of just like, what are these big dreams that you have that will push us toward liberation? And it's this community that's on the ground that's really keeping me hopeful. We families are working together. We communities are working together to network to 
give more access to families that need it more. So it is happening on the ground. It needs to happen on a much wider scale. And the mayor's office is not helping with that, frankly. And that's why we're just the most frustrated right now, because every single thing I said about our organizing, it's like we have to keep pushing them to do the right thing constantly. And it's there's so many things I've wanted to do to help build a, our community up that I can't do because I'm trying to tear a terrible system down right now. But I think we all have to remember that we have to have a vision. Our vision is health justice, anti-racism and fully funded schools. That's what's keeping me up. That's what hundreds of teachers and activists across the city are holding up as our vision right now. And that's what we're fighting for. Thank you so much, Annie, and really, really appreciate all that you're doing from talking to media, to raise awareness, to going out in the streets, um, to fight the system. And for people who want to follow up and see what you're up to and also follow the work um, of the organizing that you're doing, where can they follow? In New York City, you can follow the Moore Caucus um, at Moore Caucus UFT on Instagram and Twitter. And it's Moore UFT on Facebook. We also have a website, morecaucusnyc.org. If you want to follow my personal work, uh, I'm at Annie Tangent on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and you can find my work at AnnieTan.com. Thank you, Annie. Thank you so, so much for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. Of course. Oh, God, I just uh, I feel so much anger. I feel so much anger for Annie. I feel so much anger towards the New York City public school system, you know, also because I know it intimately and I know how much of that has failed students, teachers. It's a sham. It's it's criminal what they're asking the teachers to do. And, you know, I think we, we, we've all known that the United States has defunded education for the better part of a century. But, you know, it's frustrating both to see how far we've fallen in terms of just taking care of the basic task of educating our youth, but also like all the other systemic failures that have led to this moment and, and how far behind that we're, we're falling because of it. Annie was mentioning how the, the organizers of the Moore Caucus, they're a thorn in the DOE side. Um, and you know what? That is, that's kind of the point of protests and unions and organizing and getting the word out there, right? Like, no one pays attention to you unless you're a thorn in their side, right? Like, no matter what, no matter how the DOE feels, no matter how annoyed they are, what the teachers are demanding, they're going to have to find a way to respond and take things into consideration. Think so, about the mentality that you must have as a Department of Education to like hate your own teachers, like to really like hate your own oh teachers, God. right? Like, how, what what does that say about you, right? Like, as mm -hmm. the Department of Education, if you hate your own teachers, what does that say about you? What does that say about like what you, what job you're doing? And it's hard not to compare to other countries, like Annie was doing, right? Like, you look at other countries, right? China, Taiwan, Korea, even our episode with Kida from the Soju Black when she was talking about teaching in Korea and the students that she has. They have testing all over their their schools, all over the campus. You just take a lunch break and you go get a test. Why do we not have this set up for our education systems across the country? I think the expensive universities, like our very own Rice University, has plenty of testing. And it, it comes down to money, of course, and it comes down to resources. But other countries are able to make this happen because they see it as public health and public safety. Why can't we see it the same way? I mean, it, it depends on like whether or not you think people are important. 
or like whether or not you think like corporations and big business are important. It's like if you think people are important, if you think that like people make up a society, then you would think that like, oh, people should be covered. People should have health care. People should have adequate resources. People should have housing. I mean, Annie's just one of many teachers, right? One of in the New York City system, which I know is unique in its own way. If you guys are teachers, educators, um, if you guys are working in the school systems in other countries or other states, we'd love to hear from you. Write to us at hi at plumradio.com. I know, obviously, this is going to be such an ongoing issue as people figure out what it means to close and open schools. Um, Even from Austin, who's been working in the ERs here in Texas, as soon as schools opened, all of these students and teachers came in with COVID cases. And it's real, you know, when schools reopen, when anything reopens, it's going to lead to a spike in cases. So talk to us about, you know, what your experience of school has been like, um, what you're experiencing either as an educator, a student, or, you know, as a parent, write to us at hi at plumradio.com. And if you're new to us, make sure you follow us on Instagram at listen to plum radio. And go ahead and head on over to our Patreon as well. Patreon.com slash plum radio. Uh, We are an independent publication and we are listener supported. So we rely on folks like our listeners to to help keep us going. And uh, whatever you're doing, uh, make sure you take a little bit of time out there for yourself. Get some rest. Mm -hmm. We're we're all tired and we're all dealing with trying to put one foot in front of the other and get to tomorrow. But, uh, you know, we can't. You can't take care of others if you're not taking care of yourself. So whatever you can, do whatever you can. Get some rest. Make sure you're taking care of yourself. Take care of yourselves this week. You know, send this podcast out to friends and family who are also going through the frustrations of figuring out how to get back to school. And if you love our show, make sure you leave us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Really helps us reach new audiences. We are Plum Radio, and our podcast is produced by yours truly, Dolly Lee. And I'm Joey Yang. Audio engineer extraordinaire and co-host extraordinaire. (laughs) That's me. We will see you guys next week on Plum Radio. We are switching things up and we'll have our Instagram live on Monday nights where our guests will then be joining us as a separately recorded audio podcast. So if you guys like this format, let us know. We'd love to hear more from you and we'll see you guys again next week. Take care until then. Take care. Bye. Bye. Stop. Stop.